All right. Conflict. How many of you guys had any conflict this past week? One, two, there's a couple of you. Conflict happens all of the times. And if you have kids, you know that conflict happens literally all the time. And I, and I was thinking back uh, when I was a child and I have a sister that was here. And I remember all the conflict that we created in our house. And I remember one of the conflict was, you know, we had one of those old station wagons, if you remember those. And in the very back seat, the seats faced each other as they faced in. And it was like the coolest seat in the car. There was no AC back there. So, I mean, you're going to sweat bullets. But it was the coolest seat in the car. And I remember one of the conflicts, it was always a matter of, of fighting to see who was going to sit in the back and who was going to sit in the middle. And if somebody said in the middle, it was a fight. That's my spot. There was a conflict and it was the dumbest thing. It was like, why are we fighting over this? Right? Well, there's even wars that start because of really dumb things worth fighting for. In fact, part of the, the history of our Washington state is, does anybody heard, has anybody heard about the pig war? One person has heard about the, a couple of you heard about the pig war. This is the dumbest thing in the world, no doubt. Okay, so before Washington was a official state, we were a territory of the United States. And they, uh, they drew the boundary and, and, and Great Britain wanted a piece of uh, the Puget Sound. They wanted some of the Puget Sound, some of the islands up there. And the United States said, no, we want some of the, the San Juan Islands and whatever else. And so they drew their boundaries and said, here's, here's where the the Washington State, here's where the United States thinks it should be, and here's where Great Britain thinks it to be. They're fighting over this land, you know, and trying to battle it. And so there were some British settlers who had put in a sheep farm, and they're doing some different things up there. And, and the American settlers say, well, this is, you know, nobody's land, so we're going to come. And so American settler comes and kind of builds this little farm and kind of gets to go on, has this house and has this garden. And the British guy had pigs, right? And that's what you do. You raise pigs and you turn them into bacon because that's what a pig is for, right? And uh, probably going to turn into Christmas ham or something. And so his pigs would run around free and kind of eat wherever they wanted to eat. And so the problem was, is the pig would kept going into the, the American guy's garden and eating the potatoes. And so, you know, the English, the American guy's like, hey, dude, you know, your pig, it's all over the place. It's eating my garden. And the British guy's like, oh, I don't really care. You know, who cares? You know, it's just eating. And so one day the American guy got upset that the pig was on his property eating his garden and, and, and eating his livestock or eating his, his, his produce. And so... He did what any of us would have done. He shot and killed the pig and probably turned it into bacon. But the pig was on his property, so he killed him. And so this goes into some big thing. And you've got these two countries that are so angry about a pig. And there was this standoff where the Americans, they sent, uh, started out with 46 soldiers that they'd sent to, to defend this man. And, and then the, the Great Britain, they started sending warships. And they, they ended up having like 5,000 soldiers in, in preparing for this confrontation. And it was really, you, you, you can research this. This was fighting over a pig. Sometimes there are things that are worth fighting for. And sometimes we fight over really dumb things like a pig. And I think about all the things, even within Christianity, even within the church today, there's a lot of dumb and silly things that we fight about. There's a lot of things that we step into a church, and, and, and what happens within the church is when we fight over these dumb things, what happens is somebody who is new to Christianity, somebody who's going through a hard time, they step into the church trying to see, hey, does the church have the answer? And you know what they do? They see us all fighting over silly things. They see us fighting over uh, preferences, over, over styles. 
And pretty soon they say, you know, the church doesn't have the answer. Christianity is not the solution to the problems that I face. And they turn their back on Christ. They turn their back on Christianity, never to step foot in a church again. So what we want to talk about today is we want to talk that there are some things that are worth fighting for. There are absolutely some things worth fighting for. Today, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 22. Joshua chapter 22. If you need a Bible, we've got an usher in the back who would love to come and put one in your hand. So if you just put your hand up, we'll make sure we get one of these in your hand. And uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and take that home. Let that be our gift uh, to you. We're continuing in our Joshua series, Be Strong. And last week in chapter 21, we concluded the previous section that was focused on the possession of the land. It was focused on the Israelites taking possession of the land. The focus so far through the book of Joshua has repeatedly, we have seen God's faithfulness to his promise. God had made a promise to the Israelites and said, hey, this land is going to be yours and I'm going to give it to you. And so as we've studied through the first 21 chapters, we've seen time and time and time and time again. We've seen that God has been faithful to his promise. We saw that God was faithful when he helped the Israelites cross the Jordan River. We saw God be faithful to the Israelites through all the battles, through the battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai, the battle against the southern kingdoms and the battle against the northern alliances. And then we've seen God be faithful and even the dividing up of the land and God being faithful in the cities of refuge and the cities of Levites. So we have seen time and time again, it has been the focus on God's faithfulness to his promise. But now in chapter 22, there's going to be a transition. And in fact, the last three chapters, chapters 22 through 24, uh, the transition is, is instead of being focused on God's faithfulness to his promise, Now the focus is going to be Israel's faithfulness to God. God has shown unwavering faithfulness to the Israelites. And now it's the opportunity for the Israelites to respond, to show God their faithfulness. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the story found in Joshua chapter 22. Uh, we're going to read the story and talk about the story and learn from the story. And then we're going to kind of, once we get through it, we're going to look at the story and determine what are the things that we can find in the story that are worth us fighting for. So would you, would you pray with me? God, as we come together today, as we open up your word, God, I pray that you would speak clearly to us today. I pray that your spirit would be with us. I pray that you would help us to put the distractions out of our mind, that we could focus on you, on who you are, on what it is that you're trying to speak to us about. God, your word says your word does not return void. So God, I pray that every one of us in here today, that you would speak to us, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would be clear in who you are and what you have done and what you were trying to get across to us today. God, I pray for me as a pastor that I would be step out of the way. That, you, Lord, you would be speaking clearly today. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So would you join me in reading verses 1 through 9 of chapter 22. This also on the screen, so you can follow along up there if you'd like. Starting in verse 1, it says this. And at that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the and the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, You have kept all the promises the servant of the Lord commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, 
down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he had promised. Therefore, turn and go back to your tents, to the land where your possession lies, for Moses, the servant of the Lord, uh, gave to you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful. Be very careful to observe the commandment that the law of the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and he sent them away uh, and they went to their tents. Now, to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given them a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver and gold and bronze and iron, with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from uh, the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, which uh, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. So here we saw that the major conflict is over, the major conflict of the promised land. It has been subdued for all of the tribes of Israel. The tribes had been fighting together to possess this land that was west of the Jordan. And here, at the end of that time, the, the battles are over. Joshua singles out the two and a half tribes that chose land east of the Jordan. He says, in verse 2, he says, You have kept all that Moses has commanded you. You've been obedient. He says, You have listened to my voice. In verse 3, he says, You have not forsaken your brothers. See, what Joshua is doing is he is commending them. He is publicly recognizing them for the unique sacrifice and for the extraordinary commitment that they have made to the greater, to the greater mission of all of Israel. You see, the eastern tribes, they've already received their inheritance. They've already received their land before they crossed into the promised land. They took, they took land on the east side of the Jordan River before they even entered into the promised land. So they were the first tribes to receive the land. And so... It, they could have easily decided, you know, we already have our possession. We already have our land. You know, we're going to stay home. We're, we're going to stay home with our wives and our kids. And, and we're going to enjoy our individual freedom and our, and our, and our wealth. We're going to enjoy the land that God has given us. But they, didn't, they, they, they did not choose to stay home and to be safe and comfortable. They chose, you know, they chose the mission of Israel. God said this land here. West of the, uh, of the Jordan River, this is a land that you're supposed to possess. And so they chose to leave their families, to leave their homes, to leave their possession, to go and fight for their brothers in order for their brothers to receive their possession. And so they cared enough about the mission and for the rest of God's people that they were committed to fighting alongside the rest of Israel until all of Israel had received rest. Then they would return home. So these eastern tribes, they are commended by Joshua saying, hey, you guys are awesome. You guys are faithful. You guys have done all that God has commanded you. After seven long years of war away from their families, he is going to release them back to go home, back to their homeland, back to their, back to the, back to their families. But before he does this, he's going to first give them a couple of commands in verse 5. He includes a, a short charge, some quick commands that will be vitally important for them. Not only just for these eastern tribes, but for all the entire nation of Israel. 
Joshua, Joshua realized that these eastern tribes, when they cross back to the east side of the Jordan River, they realized they are not going to be in daily community and on, on daily on mission with the rest of the tribes. And so Joshua issues these commands in verse 5. Look at these commands. He says to observe. He says to love, to talk, to keep, to cling, to serve. He's saying this. He's saying, essentially, I want you to follow God with your heads, with your, with your hearts, and with your actions. He says first to observe the command of the law. He's saying to observe the the word of God, meaning to study, to hear, to know the word of God, to know the Bible as, as as the constant intentional part of your life. Secondly, first is to to observe and to hear and to know the law of God. The second one is to love the Lord your God. He says once you've taken the effort to listen and to know the words of God, the response that we're supposed to have to knowing who God is, to knowing his word, is to love him. This is a matter of where our heart is. That as we we learn about God, as we learn about his word, we're to love him. And finally, the third thing that that Joshua says is to walk in all of his ways, to keep his commandments, to cling to him, to serve him with all our heart and with all of our soul. See, it's not enough just to know God and his word and to claim to love him. It it actually has to change the way we live. We actually have to be obedient to it. Actions matter. You can have actions without love, but you cannot love without actions. So when you think about this, don't miss the order of the instruction that Joshua gives them. Okay, first he says we need to take care. He says, first you need to take care to hear God and to hear God's word. Then, secondly, you are to give him your love. And then thirdly comes a walk of obedience. This order is significant. Because if we mix this order up, we get into heresy. If you put love before and without hearing the word of God, that leads to heresy. Or if if you mix up and you put obeying before loving, that leads to legalism. There's an order in which Joshua said, first is to know the word of God, to know who God is. Second is to love him. And then the third step then is to obey him. So Joshua gives this short and passionate charge to these Eastern tribes, calling them to obedience, calling them to love, calling them to fellowship to God and service to God. Their military obligations are complete, but now Joshua is reminding them of their ongoing spiritual commitments. And so, we, they head back home with their wealth and their spoils. But look what happens in verse 10. Verse 10 says, When they had come to the region of the Jordan River, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they built an altar there by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. So these eastern tribes, they get to the point of the Jordan River and, and they come to it. And right before they cross into their lands, they, they build this altar of imposing size. This means it was a very big altar. It was an altar that would have been able to be seen on either side of the Jordan River. Depending if you were on the western tribes or the eastern tribes, you would be able to see this altar. It is prominently located near the Jordan River as a way for both sides to be able to see it. Verse 11 and 12, it continues, and it says, The people of Israel, they heard it, said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan and the region of the Jordan, and the side that belongs to the people of Israel. 
And when the people of Israel heard about it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. So what happens is, is they built this altar, and they built this altar right on the west side of the Jordan River. And all of a sudden, all the people on the west, they, they heard about what had happened. They heard about this altar being built. They're, they're busy getting settled into their homes or getting things situated. But news spread like wildfire. Kind of like on Monday when Robin Williams passed away. I mean, everybody was talking about, even ESPN, all about sports. They had an article about Robin Williams passing away. It spread like wildfire. wildfire. This is kind of like what was happening about this altar. It spread all across the Western tribes. Everybody was talking. Did you hear what they did? They built this altar. Something is happening. Something is going on. And they became upset about it. In fact, says that they got up and they were ready to go to war against their brothers. Now, what's interesting is remember that Israel, they've been fighting for the past seven years. They've been in battle after battle after battle. They're at a point that they're anxious and excited for rest. They're at a point that, that, that they've been waiting for this promised land for such a long time. And they're saying, hey, finally we have this land. The last thing they want to do is go to war. They're looking forward to rest. But something must have happened. Something about this altar is significant that would have caused them to be ready to go to war against their brothers. So something here is worth fighting for. The the obviously question is, why is this altar something that would be worth fighting against your brother? I'll tell you why. This altar represented a breach of worship. This altar represented a breach of worship. Really, it represented disloyalty to God. It represented unfaithfulness to God. The western tribes, when they saw this altar, they feared that the eastern tribes were being unfaithful to the one true God. Now, we got to remember what we learned last week about the Levite cities. The Levite cities that they put all across the land were, were, were spread out so that the people, the people could worship God in many different locations. They could hear God's word. They could sing their praise to him. But there was one limitation that God had given the, the Israelites in their worship. And that was the altar. In, in Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy chapter 12 and Leviticus 17, God had this one limitation. He said there's to be one altar where sacrifices will be made. Specifically now, in this case, it is in the tabernacle, which was located in Shiloh. So you could go and you could hear God's word and you could, you could learn about God in all these different locations in the Levitical cities. But there is one place, there is one altar where sacrifices were allowed to be made to God. And that was in the tabernacle at Shiloh. So this altar that the eastern tribes have made, it stood in direct opposition to what God had instructed them to do. And so the Western tribes naturally are saying, man, you are already deserting God. You're already walking away from him. You're already rebelling against God. They're like, remember what Joshua just told you to remain faithful to him? And now you're already turning your back. So the Western tribes, they hear this altar. They say, man, this is something that is worth fighting for. There's a few things in this uh, couple of verses that we should point out. Notice in verses 11 and 12. Notice that Joshua doesn't have to gather the people together. It says each person in the congregation, they felt a personal responsibility to both know and maintain proper worship amongst the people. They didn't wait for one of their leaders to point out the issue or or they didn't wait or assume someone else would, would step up and say something. 
They, 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 they didn't wait and watch to see what would happen. Every one of them called up and said, you know, we are going to step up and we're going to fight for the purity of God. This wasn't led by the leaders. This was led by the people. They were calling each other out. There is a deep passion to remain faithful to God that would not allow them to sit idly back and allow this breach of worship and unfaithfulness to God. This actually is pretty, pretty remarkable. It is an amazing sign of health that Israel is so stirred by even the appearance of unfaithfulness to God that they're ready to do something about it. Notice also that the Western tribes, as they're ready to make war against their brothers, for them, their relationship with God was more important than the concern for their relationship with their brothers to the east. I mean, the Western tribes, you've got to remember, they knew these Eastern tribes. They knew these men. They had fought side by side with them. Uh, you've got to imagine that as the war was dwindling down, you've got to imagine that they would come around the campfire and they would tell the stories, oh, remember how God did this for us? Remember how we went into the battle of Jericho and, and God caused the walls to come down? Remember all these stories? They sat back and they remembered all these things. They're eating and drinking and they're sharing the shock of all these things that God had done in their midst. These were brothers. These were people that they had lived life with, that they loved, that they cared about. Yet their readiness to fight this battle against their brothers shows a great courage to stand on behalf of God's truth and God's holiness. They were ready and willing to purge themselves of any disease or poison in order to remain faithful to God and in right standing to him. So what I love is, is here we saw Israel, they reacted to God's character, to God's holiness. God's holiness demands that we do something about it. But we also are going to see another aspect of God's holiness in their response in the next couple of verses, verses 13 to 20. Verses 13 to 20, we see that Israel is going to, the, the Western tribes are going to confront the Eastern tribes. There's a confrontation. And this confrontation shows another side of God's character. The Western tribes being really willing to go to war, that showed God's holiness. But now, by willing to send and have a confrontation, this shows the side of God's character, that God is a God of love. Verses 13 to 20, they read like this. They say, then the people of Israel, they sent to the people of Reuben and, and Gad and the Manasseh uh, in the land of Gilead. They sent Phinehas, the son of Ele- Eleazar, the priest. And they sent with him 10 chiefs, uh, one from each of the families, each of the tribes, every one of them. Uh, they sent one of one person for their family to go along with Eleazar. And when they came to the, the eastern tribes in the land of Gilead, they said to them, verse 16, this is, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel? Turning away this day from following the Lord your God by building yourselves an altar in rebellion against the Lord. Have we not had enough of the sin at pure from which uh, yet we even have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of Israel, congregation of the Lord and that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And they say, and if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now the land of your possession is unclean. Pass over into the land, Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord your God. And did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon the congregation of Israel? And he, he did not, and did he not perish? alone for his iniquity. So 
before action is taken, before they finally go to war. They, they say, hey, let's be smart about this. And so they send a delegation led by Phinehas, the high priest. He represents, uh, leads a group of, of men from each tribe, one man from each tribe. In some ways, sending Phinehas, the, the, the high priest, is a transition of power or leadership. The military campaigns are over. During wartime, the military commander, in this case would have been Joshua, he's needed to lead uh, the battles against the enemies, uh, against their enemies. But during peacetime, matters inside the family of God, they're to be dealt and mediated first by the high priest. And so the high priest, he has the spiritual authority over all the tribes, including the tribes on the east. And so they send this delegation. In verse 16, Phinehas gets to the eastern tribes and he says, what is this breach of faith that you've committed against God? See, his first concern isn't that, hey, you guys have sinned against us. You guys have, have, you guys have screwed us over by walking away from God. No, his concern is specifically that you have, uh, you have been unfaithful to God. You have been unfaithful to God. It's not the matter that you've turned your back on your brothers. The matter is you've turned your back on God. You've rebelled against him. The Hebrew word here for the word breach can also be translated as to commit a trespass or treachery against God. The idea is, hey, you have been, uh, you, you have expressed infidelity. You have been unfaithful. You have been disloyal to your God. Clearly, the Western tribes, they thought that this altar that they had built was a rival place of sacrifice and worship to compete with God's tabernacle, which is what we saw in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy that God strictly forbid. Well, one thing that this shows us about God and about Israel is that Israel cannot choose to worship God any way they choose. They couldn't justify any manner of worship because they liked it, because it felt good to them, because it was convenient. First and foremost and always, our worship should be pleasing to God. Verse 17, Phinehas says, Have we not heard enough of the sin at Peor? He brings up an example and says, Hey, remember when this happened? The sin at, 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 at Peor. This is a reminder of when Israel had been punished for their unfaithfulness and, and rebellion against God by using this, this sin at Peor for an example. In Peor, what had happened was Israelites' men, they had had sex with Moabite women. And they gave themselves over to the worship of Moabite gods. And, and God, in judgment for their rebellion against God, and in judgment for their worship of these Moabite gods, God had sent a plague that had killed 24,000 people of the Israelites. And so this incident uh, was especially meaningful to Phinehas because he was involved in, in, in ending that plague by killing a man and a woman who was caught in the act. And so Phinehas says, says hey, remember what had happened when, when there was a sin, when we rebelled against God? Remember what happened? God brought judgment upon us. Okay? And he says, he says in verse 18, he says, if you are unfaithful and rebel today, We've got to understand that God's anger will come upon us tomorrow. We will suffer judgment just like they did in Peor. And in verse 20, 20, uh, he gives another example that's fresh in their minds. He says, remember Achan. We studied Achan several weeks ago. He says, remember that he had taken some of the devoted things to God. And because he had disobeyed God, because he rebelled against God, had commanded us, the entire nation of Israel suffered for it. And there was 36 men who died because of what Achan had done. So Phinehas and the delegation, out of love, they confront the eastern tribes and they present their case. And now it's time for the eastern tribes to respond. You know, I don't know how you do when you get confronted. 
Okay, I don't know how you do when you, when you feel like you've been wrongfully confronted. I mean, if you ever, I mean, if, if any of you are baseball fans, Seattle Mariners fans, you know, back in the 90s, they had a manager named Lou Pinilla. You guys remember Lou Pinilla? I mean, anytime you made a call against Lou Pinilla and it was wrong, you remember what he did? He'd come out on the field and he'd start kicking dirt. He'd take his hat and there was a time where he picked up a base and he threw the base in the middle of the baseball game. You know, and it was like, man, that's not the kind of guy that you want to have a problem with because he just lost it. Now, if this is me and I'm the Eastern tribes and you're going to come and you're going to confront me, isn't the temptation to kind of puff your chest up in pride and kind of respond in anger? It would have been easy for them to respond in offense and pride and anger. But what impresses me is they don't respond like that. They respond with a heart for God and a desire for unity with their brothers, even when they're confronted and wrongly judged. Proverbs 15.1 reminds us that a soft answer turns away wrath. The harsh words stir up anger. So the next several verses, 21 to 29, we're going to see the response. The Eastern tribes and their response, they first make an appeal to God in verse 21. They say, mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. They at first, they appeal to God because they know that God knows for certain their hearts. God knows the intention of their hearts. And they believe that their brothers and the Western tribes have misunderstood them. And so they said, hey, hey, God first. God is our witness. God knows our heart. And, and, and we must be satisfied with being right before God, even if it means other people misunderstand us. They say, first and foremost, we want to make sure that we are in right with God. So they appeal to God and say, God, God, God. Then in verse 22 to 23, they appeal to their brothers. They say, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know that if it was rebellion or a breach of faith against the Lord, he says, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or gain grain offerings or peace offerings, May the Lord himself take vengeance upon us. So secondly, they say, hey, you know what, brothers? You know what, Western tribes? Hey, we agree with you. We completely agree. If we have had a breach of faith, if we have rebelled against God, if we have turned our back against God, then we deserve this vengeance. We deserve to suffer the consequences for rebelling against God. But verses 24 and verse 24, they begin to say, hey, here's what happened. Here's the story. They said, no, verse 24, no, but we did it from fear that in the time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between you and us, your, you people of Reuben and the people of Gad. You have no portion in the in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, but let us build an altar as a witness between us and between you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and our sacrifices and our peace offerings so that your children will not say to our children, in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said for us to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, look at the copy of our altar of the Lord, which our fathers have made, not for burnt offerings or for sacrifices, but as a witness between you and us that we serve the same God. They explain the altar, man, the altar is not built to a foreign God. 
It wasn't built as some new and alternate place to worship and sacrifice to God. They said in verse 24 that it was built in fear for our children. This word fear, if you go back to the original Hebrew, it it means to have anxiety. It means to be filled with anxiety and fear. There's a connection between anxiety and fear. And they feared that this great distance between the tribes, they feared that the Jordan River and the Jordan Valley between the Western tribes and the Eastern tribes, they feared that eventually their children might not know or they may not believe that the Eastern tribes' children were the same people. They, were, they, they worshipped the same God. They were really a part of God's people. They were concerned that that might prevent them from coming into the promised land. That would prevent them from going to the tabernacle. That would prevent them from from worshiping and sacrificing to God as God had instructed them to do. So the altar wasn't an altar to, uh, to, to worship to some unknown God or to offer burnt sacrifices. It was there as a witness between both tribes of Israel on either side, that they were in fact one people. They were in fact having one God. They in fact had one faith. They in fact had one altar. They were one people. So verses 30 to 34, they show a satisfying resolution. Phinehas speaks for the entire delegation, and they praise God that God is with us, and that they didn't come in with guns blazing because of a misunderstanding of what this altar was about. So all the tribes, they rightly recognize and they acknowledge God's hand in the beautiful resolution of this incident. By God's grace, the Western tribes, they were courageous enough to stand for truth. They were also graceful enough to act in love. And and by God's grace, the Eastern tribes, they showed that they followed God's command to observe God's word, to love God, and to walk in all of his commands. See, Joshua chapter 22, it declares that it is a truth that unifies the people of God. Apart from truth, there can be no unity. That is why when we come together at Restoration Church, we're always going to talk about the truth. Because the truth is what unifies us. So what do we take away from this? I said, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at the story. We'll do a quick run-through, explain the story. And then we're going to look and we're going to try and determine what it is that the Israelites thought was worth fighting for. What makes this story so significant? What was worth fighting about? I tell you, I don't think the answer is an altar. I don't think the altar is a main idea of what they're fighting about. Really, what they're fighting about in this chapter was the true worship of God, and and, and which leads to a proper standing before God. See, I would say that they were fighting for the gospel. I would say that they were fighting for the gospel truth. In fact, as we did our quick run through the story of chapter 22, there's a verse that I skipped. Verse 19. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a verse in this text that points exactly to the gospel. In verse 19, during Phinehas' confrontation of the eastern tribes, he said, in verse 19, he says this, But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourself a possession among us. See, Phinehas, in that moment, he still believed that the eastern tribes, he still believed that they were in sin. He still believed that they had rebelled against God, that they were unfaithful to him. And so he offers to redeem them. He offers to remove them from their sin. And then he offers to share in his inheritance. Phinehas is making it clear that he is not on a mission of condemnation, 
but rather he's on a mission of reconciliation. He's on a mission of reconciliation to the right worship and to the right standing of God. This is a picture of grace. This is a picture of the gospel. I mean, this is supposed to be what we are about as a church. We're not supposed to be about condemnation. We're supposed to be about reconciliation, about restoration, about restoring people's lives into a proper relationship with God. And in fact, the reason I say that the, the, the thing that the Israelites were fighting for was the truth of the gospel is because I think both the Eastern and the Western tribes, I think they're both fighting for the same thing. You might have missed this, but, but watch this. The Western tribes, they were fighting for the faithfulness to the truth. They were fighting for the faithfulness to the gospel. They had the courage and the love for their brothers to confront them for supposedly walking away from the truth for rebelling against God. There was a commitment they had, that they had made to each other that when one of them started walking away, that they were going to go and call them out and say, hey man, what you're doing is wrong. You're walking away from the truth. You're walking away from the thing that matters most. And they had enough love and concern that they were concerned for the faithfulness to the gospel for their brothers. See, I think that this means that this is a way that we are supposed to live with each other. I think this means that we are to be committed to each other just like this and concerned for whether or not each of us are remaining faithful to the gospel. I think this means that we are to walk in life together, living life together, holding each other accountable to do what Joshua says in in, in verse 5, to know God's word, to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul, and to walk after God's commands. I think this means that within the church, within other brothers and sisters in Christ, that when we see someone wandering away from the truth, when we see someone within our our church family delving into sin, when when we see somebody walking away from God's people, walking away from the truth, that we should love them enough to have the courage to confront them and say, hey man, you're going down a slippery slope. You're walking away from what's good and what's true and what's right. And we need to have the courage to stand up and have enough commitment for for our brothers and sisters that we're willing to confront them. Saying, hey man, you're going down a dark path. I'm going to call you back to where we're supposed to be. And that is true worship to God. And that comes from the gospel. This is what love means. When we say we love God's people, it means that we look after them and we help them to remain faithful. I mean, I've I've got a four-year-old son. And, and, and for me, loving my four-year-old son means that when we walk down the street to go to Albertsons to get our 50 cent or to McDonald's to get our 50 cent ice cream, it means that when we're walking down the street and he starts wanting to step out onto Lincoln Avenue with cars traveling at 35 miles an hour, I grab his hand and I pull him back and I say, no, we don't do that. That's dangerous. That's a picture of what the Western tribes have done for the Eastern tribes. They said, hey, you guys are wandering away into something dangerous. And it's something that will lead you to away from the truth. And they said, no, we're going to pull you back. I think this is a picture for how we are supposed to love each other. To ensure that we are all remaining faithful to the truth and to the gospel. So the Eastern tribes, excuse me, the Western tribes, it's easy to see how they remain faithful. How they were fighting for the gospel. But the Eastern tribes, it may not be as obvious, but I think the Eastern tribes, they were fighting to remain faithful to the gospel as well. See, I think they were fighting for the gospel truth for the next generation. 
See, they had this fear and this anxiety. They had this fear and anxiety that, hey, as some time comes along, their fear was that since we're separated from you, since we're on the other side of the river, that, that, that your children, your ancestors won't believe that we're the same people. They won't believe that we worship the same God. They won't believe that we are to and share in the inheritance that God has given to his chosen people. And so they built this altar as a way, as a testimony, as a witness to ensure that their children had the opportunity to go and worship God in Israel at the tabernacle. They were concerned that they were able to be in a right standing with God in the future. As you guys know, I'm a dad of five kids. And as a father of five, I get their fear. I get that anxiety for our children. I mean, I've said for, for a while, I keep looking because I would love to find this, this formula. I'd love to find this formula that says, if you do this, if you do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, if you do all these things just right, then that will guarantee that your kids will remain faithful to God. I'd love to find a formula that says, if you do all these things, that your kids will always follow God, will, will, will never delve into deep sin, will never have hardships, will always remain faithful to, to God, will always stay close to him. I would love to find some sort of formula because that's what I want most for my kids. But you know what I found? I can't find this formula. Have any of you found that formula? I don't think it exists. I don't think, I mean, this is why we can see that there are, 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 are parents who have been faithful to God and done everything right. And some reason, somehow their kids wander away. So I don't think we're ever going to find that perfect formula. But I think what we can do is I think we can do, try and do what the Eastern tribes did. We can try and put altars of witness in front of our kids. I think we can try and put altars in the kids of our lives. We're going to put witnesses in the kids of our lives. Things that repeatedly point them to the truth of the gospel and put them in the proximity of the truth. Now, you can do it any way you want, but this is how I am putting altars in my kids' lives. I mean, even as we set up Restoration Church, our children's ministry in the back, I'll tell you, you know what they're going to teach in the children's ministry? They're going to teach the gospel. Time and time and time and time again. I'm I'm not concerned about all these kids in the back learning all the Sunday school stories. I'm not concerned about them being able to answer all the Bible trivia answers that you learn in Sunday school. I'm not concerned of them learning all the the morality and and learning how not to lie and how to tell the truth. and, 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 And I'm not concerned about them learning all of those things. What I'm concerned about teaching our kids is the gospel. That they would hear the gospel time and time and time and time and time again. I want them to be around the gospel, to hear it's the gospel who changes us. Remember in in, in verse 5, remember the order that Joshua gave the Israelites? First, you learn about God. Second, you love him. Third, you obey him. So many times what we do with our children is we want to teach the obey part, right? We want to teach our kids, hey, God says don't lie, so don't lie. Hey, God says to share your toys, so you better share your toys. Those are good things, but I want my kids to get the gospel. I want my kids to get the fact that Jesus loves them in spite of their sin. So we're going to point in the children's ministry time and time and time again to the gospel. This means that in my home, I'm going to look for opportunities 
I'm going to look for opportunities to, to present the gospel, to talk about the gospel. I'm going to put altars of witness in my house about the gospel. That means that when my kids are, are coming home and they're talking about their struggles, they're talking about what happened at school, they're talking about what's happening with their friends, they're talking about what they watch on TV, I'm going to look for opportunities to bring up the gospel, to say, hey, you know, this is what the gospel means. This is how the gospel can change this circumstance. This is how the gospel can transform this circumstance. This is how the gospel can transform this person. This is how the gospel can, can transform your life. I'm going to put these altars of witness in my kids' lives. This means that I'm going to practice the gospel myself in my home. That I'm going to confess when I blow up. That I'm going to repent on behalf of my sin. And I want my kids to see that. I want them to see this is what it looks like to live the gospel. This is what it looks like to be someone who is remaining faithful to what God's word has said. This is what it means to live the gospel in real life. These are altars of witnesses. I can't guarantee that my kids will ever remain faithful to this. But I'm going to put as many of these altars as I can to point them repeatedly to the truth of who God is and what he has done for every one of us so that we can have a relationship with him. Isn't that what the Eastern tribes did? They built this altar of witness so that way their kids and their grandkids and the great grandkids would have the opportunity to come back to the gospel. Church, there's a lot of things that we can fight for. There's a lot of things that churches fight about. There's a lot of things that we can say, this is our message. And one of the things I think is true is, is you find a message and you fight for that message. And this, is, this is what churches do. Some of them say, I'm going to fight for rec racial reconciliation. Great. Some of them say, I'm going to fight for, for, for the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit. I want healings and I want all these things. And this is what we're going to stand for. This is what we're going to fight for. Good for you. Do you know what we're going to fight for right here? The truth of the gospel. Because really, we have one message. God has given us as a church, he's given us one message. He's given all Christians throughout the world one message. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them and teach them to observe all that I command you. He's given us the gospel message. This is the reason we exist as a church. It's to take this gospel message, to, to learn it personally, to apply it personally, and to take that message and apply it all around us throughout the entire world. That is the reason we exist, is to take the gospel and to take it through all the, all the city of Yakima, through all the Northwest, through the entire world. This is why we are here. It's because of the gospel and our call to take the gospel to every person, to every place every people. This is what we fight for. This is why we have to fight that this becomes our priority. This is our only priority. We must fight that we, as a group of people, would remain faithful. We've got to fight for each other. We've got to fight for each other and hold each other accountable. And say, hey man, I see you delving into an area. I mean, that means we actually have to be in relationship with each other. That means we actually have to have the courage to say, hey, Man, I love you. You're a great guy. But you've got to come back to the truth. You're wandering away from what's true and what's right and what's good. You're wandering away from the mission and from the message. We've got to have the courage to do that. We've got to have the courage for our children to point them continually to the gospel. 
Because there's many things that sway our kids. There's many things that will, will sway them and become their, their focal point, will become their, their, their priority. But we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. This is a message that is worth fighting for. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Because really, there's no other message that we can share that will really change the world. There's no other message that will change the world other than the gospel. So will you commit with me to fight for the gospel? To fight for the gospel in your own life? To fight for the gospel in your family? To fight for the gospel in this family right here? To fight for the gospel in our city? That is why we are here. That is why we exist. This is what we need to be known for.